I'd like to welcome you to pastor's class tonight as we get close to ending our time in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is where we've been. We are now uh, this evening in Matthew chapter 7 as we actually reach sort of the mountaintop. Here is the pinnacle, the, the, um, the apex of what Jesus has been teaching. So up to this point, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we've been learning uh, the ways of a disciple. What does it look like? You have ethics, you have theology, and here it, it's as if Jesus is now putting uh, a fine point on how this actually plays out in everyday life. And so if I had to put a title on tonight, it would be curing, I'd call it curing nominal Christianity, nominal Christianity. Um, I actually don't think there's any such thing as nominal Christianity. I think that's another religion, uh, just like I think theologically liberal Christianity uh, is actually not Christianity, another religion. Well, that's a discussion for another day. Let, let's go to the Bible. Uh, let me read Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. We'll come down through verse 23. Now, as I read it, you're going to see it's, it's sections. So the first section has to do with two gates or two roads, wide and narrow. And then the second section has to do with false prophets. Deal with that, and you'll know them by the fruit that they bear. Good fruit, bad fruit. And then the third section um, has to do with those that are Christians at the final judgment, those that are not. It's a really tragic uh, verse really verse 21, 2, and 3, really tragic verses. So let me, let me read these, then we'll talk about them uh, as our time together. Let's start in verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Then Jesus asked some questions. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, this is where we get the saying, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Here's the hard saying in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that's, that's judgment day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name do mighty works? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, and iniquity. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray you take this passage, the words of Jesus, and purify your church. 
Help us, Lord, to be people of conviction. Help us to not only name Jesus as Lord, but to follow, give ourselves over to the Lordship of Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's talk a little bit about Christianity on the margins. We, we don't really know that, or at least we haven't for some time in the United States, but if we just peel back our history as Christians, let's just sort of go back to where we started, uh, think with me after the resurrection of Jesus. You can find this in the book of Acts. You go read the church is born in Acts chapter 2. There you have the apostolic church. You have Peter and Paul. Go and read uh, the book of Acts. And there in the apostolic church, after the persecution of Stephen, remember he died and he died much like Jesus, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Paul watched that. So the book of Acts becomes the story of the apostolic church. That is the church led by the apostles. Peter and Paul end up there in Rome. Now probably, okay, the Bible is written, probably Peter and Paul were killed in Rome, the city of Rome, uh, under Nero's citywide persecution. It wasn't empire-wide yet because Christianity had not spread empire-wide. Uh, Christians were persecuted in Rome. Peter and Paul probably both uh, died under the hand of Nero during his persecution. Rome was set on fire, needed somebody to blame, blamed the Christians' persecution. So that started years and years and years of Christians being persecuted by Rome in the city. That means that the church flourished underground. It had believers that met secretly, they met in homes. Sometimes persecution was really bad, sometimes it wasn't. But Christianity was not the dominant religion. Just a few people in Rome and in the empire were Christians, but they were growing and growing and growing. And then finally, the last really uh, empire-wide persecution, probably the worst, is uh, in the third century, the end of the third century, with um, Diocletian. His persecution was terrible, but thank God Constantine followed him. Constantine is a strange man. As you look back in history, the 4th century, Constantine with the Civil War led his troops against another man that was claiming to be emperor. And you probably know the story of the Battle of the Milvan Bridge. And uh, after that battle is something called the Edict of Milan. 313. 313. Edict of Milan legalized Christianity. Now persecution was over forever in Rome. A few years later, uh, Constantine is legalized, but it's not the dominant religion yet. A few years later, uh, 325, Constantine gets a council of bishops. Uh, it's known as the Council of Nicaea. We have the Nicene Creed that comes out of that, that gives us what is Orthodox Christianity. Christianity is doing really good about the middle of the 4th century. By the end of the 4th century, uh, something really important happens there the end of the fourth century, the emperor Theodosius, he takes Christianity, makes it the state religion. Now we're no longer on the margins. Now Christians are becoming more and more powerful and in charge. It's part of the state religion of the greatest empire that the world has ever known. And here is the rise beginnings, the rise of Christendom, what is known 
as Christendom. Now I will give you a, a long history lesson just to say that by the fourth or fifth century, Christianity is no longer on the margins, it's in the middle. But when it gets in the middle, it gets soft and it, it gets uncommitted. It becomes part of politics and not really piety. And that is, uh, jump with me about 1,200 years down the road. Uh, we jump over a whole lot of really important people. I mean, you think about the Waldensians in the 12th century, think about John Wycliffe. You, you can think about John Huss, who's burned at the stake uh, in the 15th century. But then we come to 1517, there's Martin Luther putting those theses on the door, Wittenberg. We know it as the Protestant Reformation. So the Protestant Reformation, uh, what happens is Martin Luther realizes that, that the just live by faith. That's how we're saved. So now that newly found biblical Christianity pushed to the margins. Pushed to the margins. There, John Calvin's Wingley, you, you know the names. On the margins of Christendom, no longer, no longer in the middle with all the power. Now, now they're going to be once again persecuted, especially, especially for us as Baptists, when England goes into the English Reformation. Now we don't need to talk about much about Henry VIII. He's the one that sort of got it cranked up because he didn't like the woman he's married to. She's not having children, so he uh, marries and kills a bunch of wives. Separates with uh, with being uh, with the Catholic Church, have the Anglican Church is born, and pretty soon no longer are the Protestants on the margin in the middle. Now they're soft again. But the Puritans don't like it. There's always a remnant looking for the pure church. The Puritans, and out of the Puritans come those that say we never can purify the church. Let's go a step further into being separatist. And out of the separatist, comes the Baptist, John Smith, who was in England, ran to Amsterdam, where anything goes, including religious liberty. He saw those Anabaptists baptizing one another. He, he baptized and now brought it back to England. Here is the Baptist church on the margins. Come to America. and increasingly no longer on the margins until we get to where we are right now. Here in America, we have experienced um, a strange God and country mix for about 250 years. It has been a really good thing to be a God-fearing American. 2021, we are on the margins. The church is being pushed. You and I, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, what you actually believe, if you believe it, is being pushed to the margin. And that can create some despair if you're not careful. It can feel like um, what happened to our country, what happened to the church. But you and I can't despair because God has always preserved his church. He always preserves his church. And Christianity, genuine biblical Christianity, always flourishes on the margin. And that brings us to this text. It's the very thing Jesus said. Why we think that, that Christianity should be popular, it should be accepted, and we should be flourishing like the rest of the world, that is not at all the picture that Jesus gives to his church found here in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I'll just uh, 
go through a couple of ways to think about it. And all of them are narrow. I'm going to use the word narrow. Now, narrow typically has a negative feel. In other words, if you want to say something negative about somebody, you might call them narrow-minded. When you say that, typically you're not being complimentary. Typically, we're using that as an insult. Call someone narrow-minded, we mean that they just don't, uh, that they're hateful in some way. Let's pull the negative out and let's see what Jesus says about being narrow. Notice it with me, verse 13 to 14. There is the narrow gate and the narrow road. You see what Jesus says? Let's just walk through it. <clears throat> Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. If you come in that narrow gate, that is to say there's enough room for you to get through, but all your baggage has to stay behind. This is conversion. This is what it means to come to Christ empty-handed. Enter through the narrow gate, and then he gives a warning, verse 13, for, here's the reason why you come through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and notice who all's on it. And there are many on that way. You, I mean, you've, you've lived long enough to feel this. You, you know this in our society. That to, um, to be a part of the broad, it always feels better to have this wide approach to life, this, this universal brotherhood of man, this idea that all are accepted. Even now, the, the terms that would be things like, things like inclusion, all inclusive, all of those are antithetical to the very beginnings of what Jesus says about what does it mean to be a follower of his. He says, these are the words of Jesus, that to follow him the way is narrow, the entry point is, is narrow, the gate is narrow, and not just the gate, the road we walk is narrow. You go back and read chapters 5, 6, and 7 as he lays out for us the ethics of, of kingdom people. What does it look like to actually take those as true? What if you read 5, 6, and 7 and you believe that to be absolutely true? It, it puts you on a narrow road. It's why we talk about spiritual disciplines. They're narrow. It's why we talk about the ethics of being a Christian. When you think about all of the things that the Bible has to say about about gender, about sexuality, about marriage, uh, about how we treat people, uh, about what it means to be humble or, or to be kind, to not be prideful, to not be materialistic. And you find out that being a Christian really is a narrow road. It's what Jesus said from the very beginning. Jesus says in verse 14 that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. I don't know what ever gave us the idea that being a Christian would be easy, and I don't know why we have, we have pressed to find um, an easy way to be a Christian, when in fact the very founder, the Lord Jesus, uh, said to us, this is not the way that I've laid out for you. The, the way that I've laid out is that it is narrow to get in, and it is hard to follow. Go and read sometimes uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress written by John Bunyan, a separatist who was a Baptist in late 17th century England who was persecuted. He's in jail because of his narrow beliefs. And he writes the Pilgrim's Progress in jail 
Um, and just he himself tells us about how hard it is to actually be a Christian. This is nothing new. Uh, what's new is that we've forgotten, as 21st century Christians, we've forgotten that this little window of 200 years of Christianity in America is the exception and not the rule. The rule of biblical Christianity has been the narrow gate and the narrow road. That narrow road, you'll find out at the end of verse 14, you see there that it is not a universal. In fact, what Jesus says is that those who find this narrow road are actually few. There's not that many. Uh, it, it's a reminder that that nominal Christianity, the broad Christian idea, really isn't Christian at all. What is Christian is this sort of radical approach to understanding what it means to follow Jesus and to do so gladly, even if it means you, you end up doing it by yourself. Because this is what Jesus has said from the very beginning. It is a narrow road. So as I tell you all of these things to say that Let's not think that the church is disintegrating. Actually, the church, Christianity flourishes. At the harder we're pushed onto the margin, the more purified the church becomes and the stronger it actually is. There is a narrow road. Let me give you something else that uh, Jesus gives us. It's a longer section, verses 15 to 20. Right there, you'll see him talk about... Um, false teachers, false prophets. This is very important. And I'll just uh, name this point the narrow doctrine. We talked about lifestyle, narrow road. <clears throat> Let's talk about um, narrow doctrine for a little bit. Let me just read and go through, maybe comment on a couple of these words here in verse 15 and following. Jesus says, beware, be alert of what? False prophets, prophets who are not real. They come in, they will come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You see here, so a wolf that looks like a sheep. You understand that there, there's, for a false teacher, there's subtlety. Like, for instance, when you're watching some, um, some garish prosperity preacher, uh, you, you really are not tricked by that, typically. Or if we hear something that's, that's completely off the rails theologically, just straight heresy, you typically, if you know anything about the Bible, you're not tricked by that. What Jesus is saying is something different. It is a wolf, a wolf that is dressed like, like a sheep. There's subtlety that it can feel right and sound right, and and present as a sheep when in fact there's a there's a wolf underneath. It, it's the idea of, um, of a confidence man, a con man. And the way a con man works is he actually builds confidence in the person that he's tricking because he seems like the legitimate article. False teachers, and especially those with nuance, I think are, are a real danger to the church because it can sound enough like the truth that... Um, Enough like the truth that it can trick so many people. Here's what Jesus says. Beware of the false prophets who come in, who come in, as sheep, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Here's how you'll recognize them. So Jesus is going to give us some, some tests. 
you'll recognize them by their fruits. And he tells you why. Why are you looking for the fruit? Uh, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now look what, go, look what happens to false teachers. You see it in verse 19 and 20? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So I, as I was thinking about that, um, what do we do here in the church? So how do we, how do we test uh, what does it look like? We have several, you have several ways you can, you can use some of the confessions of faith that we've had throughout the centuries in the Christian church. You can go to the Apostles' Creed. You can go to uh, the Nicene Creed. It's a good place to start. I talked about that a little earlier. You can go to the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can go to the London Baptist Confession. You can go to the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. Hickory Grove, we, we use uh, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, updated in the year 2000. And we also use another statement. Uh, we use the Nashville Statement and the Danvers Statement, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Those are kind of just tools to help us kind of define how we understand biblical orthodoxy. They're really, though, I think you can boil down to maybe three or four questions to test. Uh, four kind of doctrinal tests that you can use. Um, I got these from Kent Hughes. Four doctrinal tests to use. Here's one. You can ask. Here's the question. <clears throat> does he preach, does this teacher, does he preach the holiness of God and the wrath of God? Does he preach? Does he, does he present God as ineffably holy? Does he present God as one who is wrathful against sin? I think that helps us think about whether our teacher is, is true or false. Another question you might use is um, does this teacher preach a final judgment? So you can think about maybe Jehovah's or Jehovah's Witness or Mormons that don't actually, they've sort of changed what hell looks like. So if you ask that question up there, it's gonna let you know, oh, that's a false, it's a false gospel. A good question is does the teacher believe in final judgment, that there is indeed a hell and that people without Christ go there? A third question might be, a doctrinal test, is does this teacher teach or preach uh, depravity or, or fallenness, the fallenness of man? You know, I mentioned John Smith about the early English Baptist. He kind of went off the rails with heresy because he, he didn't believe anymore in total depravity. There's a lot going on in the 16th century, 17th century with uh, theology, and he just didn't believe it, so he went off the rails. The question then is, does this teacher believe in total depravity? And when I say total depravity, what I mean is that every part of who we are is affected by sin. Every decision, do we believe in the depth of, of sinfulness? And then another doctrinal test might be, this for me would be one of, the, one of the clear ones, does this teacher believe in substitutionary atonement? Or if you want to push it further, penal substitutionary atonement atonement, that there is a penalty for sin and that for people to be saved there has to be a substitute that is Jesus and that substitute um, took all of the wrath of God in the place of sinners and atonement happens when a sinner 
believes that, put, puts that, appropriates what Jesus has done. Does he believe in substitutionary atonement? And for, the, for 2021, I'd add another <clears throat> uh, to Kent Hughes' list. Does he preach clear gender roles as God has given them to us? That, that's quickly becoming the new battleground. Does this teacher teach that? You hate to use the word narrow, but, but narrow is how Jesus has defined that there is a narrow road, that uh, we have hard boundaries of doctrine. There's narrow doctrine. And I'll just put a, an exclamation point on this last one that Jesus has said, and that is we believe in a narrow grace. Narrow grace. Let me, let me just point that out very quickly. Jesus says, not everyone who said to me, Lord, Lord, enters into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he explains that. On that day, on judgment day, many will say to me, look, look at the activities. Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do my, uh, many mighty works in your name? And, and, and look at what salvation depends on here. See what Jesus says? Then I will declare to them, I never gnosko. I never knew. That's the Greek word. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, so even though they had done all of these great things, the right activity, Jesus calls that, that legalism, a work of lawlessness. Why? Because they, they didn't have grace. They didn't understand that salvation is knowing Jesus. You didn't know me. See, we believe in a, this is, this is Christianity. We believe in a narrow grace that is to say that we are saved not by the good works we do. We are saved by the one work that Jesus has done in his life and death on the cross. His resurrection that gives us joy and you put your faith in what Christ has done. That, that's how you know Christ. And then from that, once that happens, from that, we then live our lives in obedience. If you, if you go all the way back, Matthew chapter 5, to the, go to the Beatitudes and look at the first two. Blessed are the poor in spirit, like a signpost on one side of the gate. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. Did you understand your sinfulness? Put the other post down. And blessed are those who mourn, understanding their sin and need for grace. You pass through those two posts, that narrow gate. There, there you'll find the grace of God found in Jesus. I think this is the cure for nominal Christianity. And I think although we are being pushed to the margins, we should rejoice that God is sustaining his church, that he will build his church. Join me as we pray, and we'll be done. Father, thank you for your good word. Thank you for your grace, and I pray that you would use us to honor the name of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.